Hello, I'm Stephanie, and this is Real Housewives of Neopia. Together, we're going to re-explore some dark depths of pop culture, most of which you've willfully forgotten. I hope you all had a restful weekend. Personally, mine started on a forcibly restful note, because Friday when I was on my way home from work, I fainted at the bus stop and possibly the bus itself, because it's unclear how I got on the bus in the first place. So, to me, most MBTA vehicles are not a safe place, but I was fortunate that no evildoers were present and everyone was nice to me, even though I still hated the experience. I felt weird the rest of the night, but now I'm just kind of cooling. I've been a fainting queen since third grade, much to my chagrin, because Despite my flair for the dramatic, I abhor the embarrassment and spectacle of fainting in front of others. At the very least, I was wearing a really good outfit and looked cute doing it. However, I would have reassessed my decision to skip underwear with the miniskirt had I known my fate. To clarify, I actually did wear underwear to work, but I took them off in the bathroom as soon as I arrived because I have the blessing and curse of a fat pussy. So the underwear were like a quarter size too small, and the nature of that was intolerable. But anyways, onward and upward. Later that night, we watched a documentary about a town I used to live in. It's called the Bridgewater Triangle, and it can be found on Amazon Prime. Shortly, I'll explain why my experience there was so harrowing, but I feel that deafening and accurate implications will arise from the Bridgewater Triangle's wiki summary alone. So here is the summary. The Bridgewater Triangle refers to an area of about 200 square miles within southeastern Massachusetts in the United States, claimed to be the site of alleged paranormal phenomena ranging from UFOs to poltergeist orbs, balls of fire, and other spectral phenomena, various Bigfoot-like sightings, giant snakes, and thunderbirds. That description only scratches the surface, but does give you a bit of an idea. There's also way more cryptids in the mix, as well as satanic cults that the documentary discusses. It was a really interesting watch, and I was definitely buying what they're selling. I'm not really as into supernatural docs as much because I prefer naturally occurring horror like Tickled or Tall Hot Blonde, but I recommend it regardless. I can safely confirm that I encountered nonstop ghouls during my two years in Bridgewater. To backtrack a little bit, Bridgewater was my first time living on my own starting in late 2014, which I believe was right before my 22nd birthday. My decision to live there was fully ill-researched and naively predicated on Bridgewater being a college town. Because of that, I somehow thought that would mean diversity, stuff to do, and an overall neutral vibe. I was sorely mistaken, to say the least, but I'm forever thankful for the endless stories in my repertoire because of that experience. At this time, I want to shout out my friend Susan, who is the one genuine friend I made in Bridgewater, and she's also an ardent supporter of this podcast. We truly found love in a hopeless place, as we were co-workers at my least favorite job of all time. 
So for two years, I worked at this place that was a local fixture. It's existed for over 30 years now. It is a westernized Chinese resto lounge with much of their revenue coming from delivery and their bar specifically. The inner workings of the restaurant were absolutely fucked. I was a hostess and a phone answering bitch who wasn't allowed to keep the thousands of dollars in tips that I earned over the years, naturally. Buckets of raw meat would often just sit on the kitchen floor for hours at a time. I need to go back into my old cell phones because I know I've taken many pictures of the buckets of meat. Since I was a hostess, I worked at the front desk, which was in full view of the bar, which was always heavily populated with a crew of daily regulars. Everyone both looked and acted like Love After Lockup cast members, or alternately, a lot of them also kind of looked like Dog the Bounty Hunter. They would just watch Deal or No Deal on the bar TV for hours at a time, and they'd occasionally break up the monotony by sexually harassing me or any of the other young female employees. Suzanne, of course, was included in this. It was like way beyond the garden variety misogyny you normally surmount working in a restaurant when old men are just like, smile or whatever, which don't get me wrong, is infuriating. But this often crossed the line into just blatant, aggressive sexuality. And while this was all transpiring, they'd all just be like, guffawing and patting one another on the backs with their dirt caked hands. The management and the bar staff enabled it completely and would chalk it up to just, that's how he is, lol. I would never, ever deal with that now, but at the time I was in a really desperate place. I was super broke and I was working two jobs. There was even a period of time where I worked a couple of months with no days off combining them both, and I was miserable. I would cry pretty much every day. Management was totally fine with drunk old fuckers sneaking behind my desk as I took phone orders where they would hug me from behind, for example. They were also pretty chill with them telling me things like keep standing there and looking sexy, even when we would rightfully complain about it. There's one instance that sort of rises above the rest in my mind, where one of my biggest fans, who apparently used to play for the Red Sox, I don't know, he would tell anyone who would listen, but at this point in his life, he was in a rut, and I don't feel bad for him. Anyway, he was obsessed with me, and he literally backed me into a corner, physically and figuratively, both while begging me to come back to his house and telling me how sexy I am. My manager witnessed this. My manager, who I believe at the time was like a 40-year-old man, saw this, and he let me hang out in the back to like get away from him, but he did nothing to intervene or kick out the guy. The guy also continued to be a frequent patron. So the customers there were a nightmare, but my coworkers were a whole other story entirely. This includes, but is not limited to, a career delivery driver who just lived to body shame us girls and also shit on the dining room floor without cleaning it up. Let me know if you want to hear more about that in the future. He was super obsessed with his nephew's mother. I'm unclear on the relate, like blood relation, if there was any between them. 
but he was obsessed with her and she did fitness competitions and was like a bodybuilder similarly to Tamara Judge or Anfisa from 90 Day to the point where he put up her picture at the bar and idealized that like just like super cut buff body type as the only way. So he would often tell me and other beautiful young ladies on the job that we needed to tone up. These are just small examples because there's truly infinite content to unpack. So if you want to hear more about the Me King Diaries, let me know. So during this time in my life, Susan was my only solace. We eventually became friends by bonding over hating the same people, and we'd close together on Saturdays, so she would drive me home at 2 a.m., and we would end up just binge-smoking weed while parked in my driveway and talking shit about people, just for hours. Six years later, we both lived to tell the tale, and we're still great friends. I finally stopped working there in summer 2016 and did an unprecedented no-call no-show, which is super out of character for me, but I don't have a single regret at all. After I finally stopped working there, Aaron and I collaborated on a cathartic art project where we doused my uniform shirt, which was a horrific beige polo with their logo on it. We doused it with, I think, dry shampoo or some other flammable hair product. And then we just lit it on fire in my driveway and we filmed it until it burnt to a crisp. And then we edited and uploaded the video set to break free by Ariana Grande. I think that's still up on Vimeo somewhere. Maybe I'll post it for lols because that's a truly great memory for me. I hope that this Bridgewater interlude is compelling for you guys because I'm going to keep the ball rolling just a little bit longer. Keep in mind this all circles back to the Triangle documentary because these are my lived experiences with Bridgewater Triangle cryptids. I just briefly want to discuss my roommate at the time. Just like that job, there's endless content wrapped up not only with this man, but almost every roommate I've ever had, so let me know if you want to dive deeper in the future. I'm desperate to source the video that accompanies the following story, and I will post it if I can, but TBD. So my roommate was my best friend at the time's boyfriend, although they broke up shortly into our lease term, which, as you might be able to guess, wasn't ideal. So before we moved in together, she, as in my best friend, relayed that he voiced concerns over my aesthetic monopolizing the apartment. He said something to the effect of, it's not going to be Barbie and Hello Kitty everywhere, right? So I kept my stuff basically confined to my room because I understand boundaries and the concept of shared space. Like he lives there too, as much as I want to live in a pink Barbie dream house, you know? So in spite of that, he instead monopolized the common areas with his aesthetic, which largely was defined by Halloween decorations that he dumpster dove for and hidden gnome figurines in our spice cabinet. He lived for a dumpster dive journey and our living room would be full of his findings. He worked at a pizza place that was next to a dollar store, and after work, he would just go ham in the dollar store dumpster. 
I want to note too that he wasn't, this wasn't out of necessity. This was just his hobby. So I voiced how annoying the double standard was to my then friend under the guise of confidentiality, but she obviously told him immediately. The following morning, I woke up to open the bakery, which was my second job at the time. So it was like six in the morning. And I came down the stairs to find not only all of his stuff removed, but the walls covered in these hastily drawn Hello Kitties on lined notebook paper. They looked like child drawings, but they were on just like torn notebook paper and placed all over the walls. I throw around this phrase a lot, but I earnestly was shook to my core. I took a video just walking around and like videoing all of the drawings. And I know I sent it, sent it to multiple people. So as I said, I really want to source that video to show you guys and just to revisit for myself. So I'll just end the Bridgewater Cryptid segment here, but please sit and marinate with that. Also stream the Bridgewater Triangle on Amazon Prime. I do want to give credit where it's due because he actually was one of the best roommates I've ever had comparatively. So that might incentivize you to seek further knowledge about my roomy roster. Moving right along. If you've been living under a rock or simply don't watch Vanderpump Rules, you missed a cataclysmic situation that transpired earlier in the week. A Vanderpump Rules editor named Bree Dellinger, who's now a former editor as she was fired as a result of all of this, appeared on a podcast entitled Twisted Plot Podcast. During her appearance, she admitted that her favorite pastime was embarrassing Sheena and that the network wanted production slash editors to adhere to a sort of hero character for both Bo and Stassi. She was also super proud to admit that she was responsible for the edit that made it appear like Sheena was hitting on Stassi's teen brother, Nikolai. After this started making waves on social media, so many people were forced to delete their tweets about it. I originally found out via Danny Pellegrino, who tweeted the relevant audio clips and added how unprofessional it was, but his and everyone's tweets disappeared shortly thereafter. My personal favorite vanished tweet is by the maligned Queen Sheena herself, which simply read, at Andy, I have tea. Check your DMs. So speaking of both Danny and Sheena, Sheena did an amazing interview on Danny Pellegrino's podcast and shared that many people were calling her a pedophile and she was losing brand deals as a result of her portrayal. I think that making someone look like a thirsty loser is one thing. But playing pedophilia for lols is something else entirely. Everyone has also noticed this season that at least once per episode, there's an embarrassing Sheena montage. At first, it was amusing, but it just became abundantly clear to all of us that something weird was afoot and there were larger biases at play. I also think it's worth mentioning that you don't really need to try and embarrass Sheena. She does it organically, and that's what makes her the funniest moments. I say that with love because I believe that VPR was built on both she and Kristen Doty's backs. 
The story completely inundated all of the Bravo IGs and Reddit and the podcast, understandably, because it's pretty huge. There was one common criticism I saw of Brie Dillinger's hashtag cancellation, though, which is that her quotes were often removed from context when they were discussed. This is true, but it's only because people were sourcing the highlights, as I think the podcast was over an hour. I listened to the whole thing before it was deleted, and I feel that it wasn't any better hearing it in context, and that the backlash overall was justified. As reality TV fans, we know the name of the game when it comes to editing, and I don't think that anyone's upset that a reality star was made to look dumb. That's a huge part of what keeps the wheels turning, and I would never fight that. Brazenly admitting how the sausage is made, so to speak, as Troy McKeady would say, and including the extreme bias therein, is the problem. She jokingly said that Sheena would befriend her if she was smart to avoid embarrassment, which clearly was said in jest, but it still seemed a little nefarious to me. Not only was her appearance on that podcast super unprofessional and frankly just kind of weird, but it spoke to a larger issue in the fan base. The blatant favoritism rather than commitment to embarrassing them all is part of why this season has fallen so short. Bree Dillinger was proud to admit she was responsible for the Stasi engagement and softball tournament episode, which for me was a true low for the season. The Shishu pedophile implication played for lols was both over the line and simply not funny. That was the least of the episode's problem, though, because the rest was just bad. I remember Aaron was cooking or doing something while I was watching, and after he was asking, like, how's your show? What happened? And I literally was like, I don't know. Marie has since been fired by Bravo and wrote an essay in response. It's since been removed, but I read it when it was up briefly, and I wasn't particularly impressed. Her main point referred back to one I just mentioned, which chalked up the larger discourse to people taking her words out of context. I felt that she came off as a self-portrayed martyr, and I wish her good riddance from the show. She also bragged about her specific editing style, both on that podcast and in this essay. She was especially proud of the Tequila FOMO infomercial from, I think, season seven. I don't remember. And she referred to her unique editing flair and said that we'll miss it as viewers, which, frankly, I don't believe to be true. Because that sense of humor and those scenes are not really my cup of tea. And for everyone else I know who watches the show, they don't really like that either. But it takes all kinds, I guess. I don't know this woman's life, so I'm not trying to drag her through the mud. But overall, just to me, she hasn't come off well any way you slice it. Moral ambiguity aside, this is again part of the larger picture of Vanderpump Rules' decline, which I think is why everyone is so ablaze with this news. That being said, I do want to acknowledge how much I've thoroughly enjoyed the last few episodes. 
I really hate that it's getting good as the season prepares to end literally tomorrow, but I'm glad that they gave us something. I know a few episodes ago, I expressed that I didn't hate this season necessarily as many others do because it was interesting watching a hit reality show sort of become a parody of itself. But the last few episodes, they're giving us something that's to me, is earnestly good rather than a scientific study. Jax's coke rage, transparent jealousy of Tom Sandoval and abject misery is an intoxicating combination. One-on-one scenes with he and Stassi, especially last week, are also always compelling to me. I truly believe that Jax sees Stassi as his one who got away, And it's a combination of both depressing and spellbinding to see how much he clearly respects her over his own wife, Brittany. As I've mentioned before, and so many others have discussed ad nauseum, it's so clear that the core crew of Stassi and Bo, Lala, the Bubba's, and the Couchies have an off-air pact to keep the mess off screen. That's been the detriment of season seven and eight. But Jax's spiral is throwing a big fat wrench in that plan, and in doing so, he's highlighting the reality of that situation. Not only is he raging out in an absolutely insane way, but Stasi and Lala's continued allegiance to him shows how contrived their little alliance truly is. It makes absolutely no sense, and neither Stasi nor Lala would deal with that in real life. It wasn't an accident that I omitted the Bubba's this time, though, as we saw them stand with the right side of history this week. I refuse to give Tom Schwartz credit for standing with his wife, because he literally only does it when her adversary is another woman. We saw this in season six with Sheena when he called her a bootleg Kardashian, for example. This time, he was calling Britney an idiot. She 100% is... But I don't care to hear him speak to women like that, or even hear him speak at all. The unraveling of Miss Kentucky Muffin herself satisfies my need for Schadenfreude in a really dark way. Seeing her pour herself shots with a shaky hand because of a pool party-related conflict is almost as chilling as watching Jax hack away at a frozen pasta dish with his spatula. As I mentioned in my other VPR episode, I have never liked Brittany. I hate watching her scenes, and I only want her there if we're going to see the true darkness within, which is clearly abundant. Even though she sold her soul to be a Bravo celebrity, I'm not heartless, and I'm definitely sympathetic to her plight as Jax's wife. He's an absolute beast, and no one deserves to be treated like that by their partner. More than anything, I've really hated the hollow-as-hell Jax redemption arc that was forced upon us season 7 and 8. I knew it was only a matter of time before that farce crumbled, but I was so impatient getting to that destination. It literally took forever, almost two full seasons. I really wish that the screen time that was allocated for their nuptials was redirected to give Charlie and Danica more airtime evenly split with the de-evolution of Jason himself. For once, I'm actually so excited to watch the finale tomorrow. That's been a super unfamiliar feeling as of late regarding Vanderpump Rules. 
There was a recent stretch of time where I dreaded watching it every Tuesday, but I obviously did anyways. I would soothe myself by remembering that Summer House was just 24 hours away. Since Summer House's season is over now, I'm at least thankful that Vanderpump will cushion the blow by hopefully, fingers crossed, delivering tomorrow. Even if the finale falls short, at least I can hold on to the feeling of excitement going into it rather than being weighed down by dread. Since I did a mid-season State of the Union a few weeks ago, I want to update you on my Vanderpump Rules wish list. It's more or less exactly the same as what I said before, but perhaps the opinions are now more informed. I am done with Stassi and Bo, the Couchies, the Bubbas, and Lala. I've actually been into Katie for the latter part of the season, but she's just going to be a Schwartz-related casualty. There might be a way for them to stay, which I'll get into later. I also somewhat redact what I said about Dana. I believe I called her fine with a capital F, but I'm now pretty over her. Unlike many people in the VPR action figure factory, she does not seem like a dummy and she does seem like she has something to offer, but I cannot deal with her any longer. The Max and Brett fake love triangle is truly insulting to my intelligence. Laura on Sexy Unique Podcast profoundly noted the other day that their scenes seem way more cut from the cloth of a Laguna Beach or the Hills style, and she's absolutely right. There are no concrete statements that are ever made between them. It's just like, I just don't know. Like, I like you, but I don't know. It's just like hard. And they just stare off into the distance with not a shred of charisma to spare between the three of them. Maybe I would be willing to give Dana a second chance if she took a step back into a Christina Kelly type tier. Side note, I actually stand Christina Kelly and miss her on the show. Remember when she had talking heads sometimes? I think that was like season three. Anyways, to speak in terms that Max would understand, I need him 86 His us tether person Brett can go too. In my perfect world, we would move forward with Tom Sandoval and Ariana, James and Raquel, Sheena, Charlie, and Danica, along with the other Brett, who's her boyfriend, who's a bartender at Sir, that she pushed on the job, and they got all that footage and never aired it. Why? I really want Kristen to stay, obviously, but she's just so resistant to the newbies. I at least need her in a friend of role since she's actually friends with both Sheena and Ariana. I think that the demotion to friend of would also light a fire under her to throw the fuck down, and I have every confidence that she would. Since TomTom is a huge part of Tom Sandoval's life and storyline, I suppose I would accept Schwartz's presence if he was demoted to a Peter-type figure, because I think that's what he deserves. That said, Katie could stay friend of too, and I might might even enjoy her more when she's away from the Witches of WeHo and the Couchies. This summarized my end of season State of the Union, but I want to briefly mention that Peter posts thirst traps in the Vanderpump Rules subreddit. I think that's really poor form, and I just wanted to bring everyone's attention to that. He is a true enigma to me, and I think that Bravo's ultimately doing him a huge favor by relegating him to a backseat position. 
if he continued as a main cast member, I think we'd be privy to how creepy he can be. That's something a lot of the girls and people behind the scenes have spoken of, and I don't doubt it at all. I don't remember if I've said this on the pod already, but he's very much edited to come across like a robot designed exclusively for Lisa Vanderpump's needs. I've also been getting more into candles lately since I'm just always home now because of COVID, and he has gendered candles on his website that I'm extremely curious about. Whether or not I'll invest in Peter Madrigal's homemaking empire remains to be seen. On the subject of candles, I just want to quickly divert and shout out my longtime mutual and friend of the pod, Kiana. I recently bought a candle from her with amazing throw and longevity. Plus, it just smelled stunning. It was Georgia Peach scent. All of her candles are also comparably priced to something in Target, but the quality is so much better, truly. So that said, I implore you to all check out her Etsy, which is etsy.com slash shop slash the decadence candle. Just needed to get that out of the way. But I'm not done talking about Peter, for better or for worse. I will end this Peter soliloquy by telling you that my roommate and friend Allie collaborated behind my back with my husband recently to go 50-50 for a Peter cameo for my birthday because she knew that I would think it's funny and she's correct, but it sadly never came to fruition. So my gift to myself, if and when my business recovers from COVID, will be to pay for a Peter cameo for myself and force him to make robot noises. On that note, that's where I'll leave you all this week. I always have so much fun talking at you guys on the pod, but I equally enjoy talking to you whenever you DM me about the contents of the pod or give me suggestions. Like I've said so many times, you guys always have the best suggestions of things to talk about. I will be back again next Monday night as I've settled on Monday nights for my consistent release day. Thank you all for your patience while I figured that out, by the way, because I know I was sort of all over the place. I also want to take this time to thank my two podcast supporters who are generous enough to pledge a small monthly amount to help me keep this up and running and also work toward improving the quality. It means so much to me, and if any of you want in on that highly optional action, there's a link in all episode descriptions. You can also find both me and the pod on IG. I'm at Botox Groupon, that's B-O-T-O-X-G-R-O-U-P-O-N, and the pod is at Real Housewives of Neopia. Have a very sexy and unique week, and we'll chat soon. I love you. Bye.